And our, doc, our gospel reading will be also our sermon text, so you may want to keep this open. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to chapter 13, verse 9. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 872. Luke 12, 54 to 13, 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there is a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The gospel. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for your spirit to be here. Lord, I pray that you will anoint my words. I pray that you will open our ears to hear from you. And above all, Father, I pray that you will be seen and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to focus on the middle part of our gospel reading. I want to focus on this portion on chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And use this to really to set up the main thrust, the main problem in this passage. And then we'll look at the other verses as context to really to answer the concerns that are being addressed in chapter 13, verses 1 and 5. Well, in this section, we see two concerns being brought to Jesus. The first concern we see in verse 1, and it says that those present told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know much more about this incident than what's recorded here. It's not mentioned in any other scripture or any other sources. So it appears that Pontius Pilate had murdered these Galileans while they were worshiping and leading to this indignity of their blood actually being mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. In the second incident, this is actually brought up by by Jesus himself in verse 4. And he mentions the collapse of a, tire, of a tower in Siloam. So Siloam was a, was a neighborhood 
in, uh, in Jerusalem. And this tower that collapsed had killed 18 people. Now, it's important for us to understand that both of these incidents were well known to the people talking with Jesus. They were most likely recent events. The people standing there may have witnessed one or both. They may have known people who were killed in these events. So these two events uh, hit close to home to these people. And Jesus is a master at reading people. He knew exactly what was on their minds, even though they didn't bring up what they, when they talked about, this, what, about this, this incident, even though they didn't say it. He knew the questions that they had, even though they didn't ask him these questions. So in verse 2, Jesus answers them saying, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And in verse 4, Jesus said, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the other who lived in Jerusalem? Were they worse offenders? And this is a question that they wanted to ask, because this is exactly what they were thinking. And this is exactly the way we think. See, we need to know when a tragedy happens. We need to be able to to make sense of a tragedy. And these types of tragedies are, are even more troubling when they seem random, when they seem unpredictable. And they happen to people who are, who are just like us, just like those who are standing in front of Jesus. See, they all knew. They knew instinctively that they too could have been the victims. They too could have experienced these tragedies. And these two incidents, they represent the two types of tragedies that we face. The first is a seemingly random act of violence. And the second is a seemingly random accent. And I think it's the randomness that we can't handle. The fact that these incidents seem unpredictable. They shake shake our security. They they make us feel vulnerable. And we don't like feeling vulnerable. We want to feel secure. So our natural reaction, and we all do this, the people speaking with Jesus do this, we do this, is we look for a factor. We look for a factor in the victims, some sin, something that they did, something they did wrong that brought this tragedy upon themselves. And what we think is that they had some hidden sin that caused them to have this tragedy happen to them. And this was the attitude that we see among Job's friends in the book of Job. See, Job's friends, they see the great trials, the, the, the bad fortune that Job was experiencing, And they're certain that it had something to do with some secret sin that Job had committed. Now, emotionally, the friends, they cannot accept that this righteous man, Job, the most righteous man around, that he could suffer the horrors unless there was something secret, something that they couldn't see, something that only God knew and God was punishing them for. So they know outwardly, outwardly Job is much more righteous than any of them. So it terrifies them. It terrifies them to look at Job and see what happens to him and saying, that could happen to me. I could face that same type of calamity, that same type of tragedy that Job was experiencing. And they actually think that they're being helpful to Job. They think that they they want him to repent. They say, repent, you you must have done something. But their accusations only make Job's trial all, all the more worse. See, he's in agony, and instead of his friends showing compassion and commiserating with him, they tell him that his misery that he's facing is his own fault. Can you think of anything more cruel than that? And we too, we too do the same thing. 
Now, it looks different in our secular society. We don't explicitly think that God is punishing people uh, with tragedy, although some people do. But for the most part, what we do is we don't accuse the the victims of, of moral error, of sin. Rather, what we do is we look at some judgment error. We look at some unique factor in the victim, but one that that we are wise enough that we ourselves would not do. Again, we look at a way of looking at the the victims and saying, this is something they did and something we would not do. It's something that we would not do. It makes us, we we, we want to have some way of, of making ourselves immune to the tragedy. Something that the person did that brought the tragedy upon themselves. And we're confronted by the fact that, 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 or we're comforted by the fact that we are different, that we would not make the same mistake. And because of this, we think somehow we are immune to this type of tragedy. And let me give you two examples of how we do this. These are personal examples, uh, things that I have witnessed uh, myself. One was a senseless act of violence, and one is a, a senseless accident. And these two events, again, are things that I've seen personally. The first one happened over 35 years ago when Lynn and I were in, in college. And it happened right outside of Lynn's apartment. There was a car speeding down the street, and it swerved on the wrong side, and it crashed head-on into a Volvo truck. I know it's a Volvo truck because I came out to see the accident and saw the Volvo truck. And in this car, there were three Rutgers students, just like us, and one was instantly killed. The one who was killed was actually ejected from the car. It really shook me up seeing his body, his dead body, lying on the, on the pavement. You know, the police eventually came and put, a, put a, a blanket over covering up the body, but we knew what it meant. We knew this person, this kid, someone just like us, someone our own age, had just been killed. Seeing this shook us up. And I remember feeling a little relief when it was reported that the three students in the car, as could be imagined with college students, they had been drinking. The driver was drunk. None of them were wearing their seatbelts. The accident wouldn't have happened if they weren't drinking. The student who was killed would have survived. Even, even if they got into the crash, he wasn't ejected from the, from the car because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And I could look at that and say, well, that's something I wouldn't do. I would never drive drunk. I would never, I didn't even drink at the, at the time. I, and I always wear my seatbelt. I, I somehow felt that, that I would have been okay. I wouldn't have been, been, I wouldn't have been the same as this accident. Somehow it was the fault of the victims. And yes, these students were responsible. We don't want to make light of that. But this was still a tragedy. There was still a parent that lost a 19-year-old child there. So this is the first incident. The second incident was on April 16, 2007, a day that I will always remember. It was that day that I was on lockdown in my office at Virginia Tech because a gunman had killed two students in the building right next door. And then he went across campus and killed another 30 students on the campus. And this hit close to home. I mean, I was right in the middle. I was in lockdown. I heard the stories. We saw Lynn was watching TV from her office, and she saw my office on there with on the news, 32 killed at Virginia Tech. We knew people who were involved in this. We knew victims. We, that night, we went to church, and we were praying with a lady who was in one of the classrooms who got shot at. Thankfully, she wasn't hit, but she was standing teaching at a podium, and she said there were bullets on the side of the podium where she was shot. The next day, I saw a friend of ours who was wounded. He was shot in the arm. He came into my office. He was typing with one hand. He was shot, and he was telling me that he was one of the few lucky ones because most of the people in his classroom were killed. 
And then the gunman left, and then they were able to barricade the door so that he couldn't get back in. There was another person, the, the uh, father, former classmate of uh, Jessica's, whose father was killed in this incident. So this hit very close to home for us. And I clearly remember the shock that we all felt that day. But it was almost immediately, immediately after this happened, came out the criticisms. Came out the criticisms of Virginia Tech, how they could have handled the situation better. They were implying that it was their fault. They should have been quicker alerting the campus. They should have had locks on the classroom doors to keep the gunmen out so people wouldn't have to barricade to keep the gunmen from getting out. They should have identified this student who was a troubled student. Again, I knew, uh, I knew one of his professors personally. And they should have understood that this guy was unstable and a possible threat. Now, thankfully, thankfully, there were many lessons learned on that day in 2007. And many of those things have been incorporated in universities and primary schools. But still, this is different than blaming the victims. And that's what they were doing. They were blaming the victims. And they were doing it because they were scared. They were scared. They wanted to somehow think that we would be different. Our kids would be different in our colleges. This couldn't happen to us. Virginia Tech must have done something wrong to bring it on them. And this reaction is both hurtful and it's inaccurate. The thing is, we were all vulnerable at that time. And here's the really hard news that Jesus gives to these people concerned about this incident of the Galileans' blood being mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answers the question that's on their minds. Are these people who experienced these tragedies, are these worse sinners than other Galileans? Or are these people who the tower fell on, are they worse than other people who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus answers this question in a way that I don't think they want to hear. Because the answer is no. They were not any different. Was these people at Virginia Tech, were they any different? No. Were they worse sinners? No. The answer is that they were not any worse. And even more difficult to hear is what Jesus says next. Because Jesus knows the question behind the question. And the question behind the question is this. Am I safe? Am I safe? Could this have happened to me? This is what they really want to know. And how does Jesus answer this question? Jesus says they are not worse sinners. And here's the kicker. Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you repent, you will likewise perish as well. See, they were asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, why did this bad thing happen to these other people? The more appropriate question should have been, why do these bad things not happen more often? Or why don't they happen to me? And this is the right question. And Jesus answers this question as well. Why don't these things happen to me? Well, Jesus answers this question with the parable that he gives. This parable of the barren fig tree. And this parable, the, the fig tree is given everything that it needs. Everything it needs to produce fruit. But it still doesn't produce fruit. And this situation cannot go on indefinitely. If the tree does not produce fruit, the tree is going to be cut down. The tree is going to be burned. See, it was planted for a purpose, and that purpose is to produce fruit. And if it doesn't fulfill its, its purpose, hence it is under judgment. And the only reason that the tree is not immediately faced judgment is that it is given more time. It's given one more chance. It's given one more year. And this is not a year of, of neglect, but rather this is a year of care, of, of intense care. And the desire is for the tree to produce fruit. So the vine dresser is going to dig around it. He's going to fertilize it. He's going to make sure it has everything it needs to be successful, to produce fruit. 
Now, obviously, this is a parable. This parable is not about a tree. This parable is about people. It's about the people Jew- Jesus was talking to, the Jewish people, God's people, the very people that came to Jesus with this concern about the Galileans and their blood being mingled with the sacrifice. And Jesus is saying to them that you are the tree that does not produce fruit. He's saying you have been given all the advantages. You have the scripture. You have the traditions. You have the patriarchs. You know about God. You know his character. You know his requirements. Yet you do not know, you do not do what you know. You do not produce fruit. You do not do what is being required. And because of this, they are at that very moment, they are under judgment. They are just like those who were were killed with their sacrifices or, or those who were killed when the tower fell on them. And there's nothing that the victims did differently than the people who are asking the question. And the hard truth is that it could have been them. It could have been us. So instead of looking for something that the victims did and something that we would do different that, would, that led to their judgment, they should ask, why have I not yet been judged? And the answer seen in this parable is not because they're any better. It's not because they're any smarter or any holier. The reason that they are not judged, the reason why I am not judged, is because of God's mercy. It's because of God's patience. But his patience has a purpose. It has a purpose to give the tree time to grow. It gives to give the people time to repent, to give us time to produce fruit. But eventually, eventually, if they do not repent, if they do not produce fruit, time will run out on these people, and they will likewise perish. And the underlying issue that these nine verses in chapter 13 highlight is that the people had the wrong assumption. And this wrong assumption is not limited only to the people in in Jesus' day. This wrong assumption is prevalent in our own day as well. And the assumption seen is in the common question, which is basically a, a version of the question that people bring to Jesus about the Galileans. And this question, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard it before. You may even ask this question yourself. And the question is simply, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And you see there's actually an assumption hidden in this question. And the assumption is that there are actually good people. Jesus is saying there are no good people. See, what actually happens is bad things happen to bad people. But the more perplexing question is why do so often do we not see bad things happen to bad people? Or why do we even see good things happen to bad people? And the answer is God's mercy. The answer is God's patience. And this mercy and this patience has one purpose. And that is to bring people to repentance, to bring people to faithfulness. So recognizing this this faulty assumption the assumption that we are good people by nature and not under condemnation. This is the essence of repentance. And this is the message that provides, I think, the context that we have just looked at in in chapter 13. And we see this context in chapter 12, verses 54 to 59. So let's look specifically at chapter 12, verses 54 to 56. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? See, Jesus here is calling out their blindness. They're so concerned with reading the signs of the weather, but they are oblivious to their spiritual condition. They're completely blind to the fact that they are under judgment. And they mistakenly confuse God's patience, God's giving them time for repentance, with them being perfectly secure in this precarious situation. In verses 57 to 59, Jesus conveys an urgency, the urgency of the situation. He says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And these verses tell that there is a debt, a debt. And they are urged to make every effort they could to settle this debt that they are currently under. They're currently under judgment. They have not yet suffered. They have not yet suffered the consequences of this judgment. But if they don't settle quickly, they could face serious consequences. And this reminds me of a situation I was in back in 2007, 2008. I was serving as the treasurer of the board of directors for for Jessica and Sarah's Christian school. And one day we got a letter in the mail from the IRS. And it was stating that they had not received our, our 990 form which is a form that all nonprofits have to, to file yearly, yearly. Now, I had never even heard of a 990 form. I, I learned a lot about it very quickly. See, not only had they not received that year's, they had not received the last seven years of our 990 form. And on this letter, it said, on the, it said if you're late, there could be a $100 a day penalty. Now, just think about it. We were seven years late on one, six years late on another, five years late on another. Add it up. This comes to hundreds of thousands of dollars. That was, the, uh, that was the threat that was hanging over. That got my attention very quickly. And what had happened, it was, it, was not, it was not anyone's fault. When the school was formed seven years prior, they were, they were part of a church. And the church had folded. Now, churches don't have to do the 990 forms. So when the, church was, the school was part of the church, they didn't have to do the 990 form. But when they folded, they became parent-run, then we needed to do this form every year. No one knew this. Hadn't been done for seven years. So I found ourselves in a situation that we were hundreds of thousands of dollars possibly in fine. You know, this is a small school. Our budget was only, was less than a million dollars a year. That would sink this school immediately. So what I did is I contacted an accountant that we knew, and we, we worked on it to, to get all the information we needed to start uh, putting the forms together. And I wrote a very humble letter to the IRS explaining why we failed to complete the form, that we weren't aware of it, and that we were currently working on it, and that we were going to submit the forms as soon as we could, as soon as possible, and tell them that we were a small private school, and this type of fine would throw us out of business. And then we spent a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in prayer. Now, thankfully, we were forgiven all the fines, and we diligently submitted all of our, our, our 990 forms ever since. But this is an example. We found ourselves in a bad situation. We were in deep trouble, and we needed to act urgently to get out of that trouble. And this is what we see in these verses. This is what we see in these verses, that we are in trouble. All of us are in trouble. And what we see in this gospel is, is in these verses of our gospel reading, 
is the first part that I always mention when we're giving a gospel message. Remember when I talk about the first part? There's two parts of the gospel message to get someone saved. First, you got to get them lost, right? You got to get them lost because the problem most of us have is we think we're okay. We think we don't need the gospel. They say, well, that Jesus, that's good for you if you need that, but, but I'm okay on my own. The problem is we're not okay. The problem is all of us are under this threat. All of us are lost. And the gospel we need, the gospel is the only hope we have. So you've got to get them lost before you get them saved. That's what we see here. The overarching message here is the bad news. And in reality, this is the bad news of all of us. All of us by nature are alienated from God. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. It says that every single one of us, by nature, are children of wrath. We are under the wrath of God. Now, this is the bad news. But thankfully, Ephesians 4 doesn't, Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there. Verse 4 starts, we are given the good news. Let me just read this. We read this this morning. This was our assurance of pardon. But I'm going to read this again. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own thing, doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, crea- created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, it's really God's grace that opens our eyes to our condition. Because it's only when we we know we have a problem, it's only then that we will seek a solution. See, if we think we're okay, we'll just blindly go off to an eternity, a Christless eternity. But if we know we're in trouble, just like if I I didn't know that I had these 990 forms, we'd continue to go and the IRS could have just taken us out of business. But once you know, then you do something. Once we know this, then we seek the solution. And thankfully, the solution is the gospel. Thankfully, we have Christ. It's only when we realize that we have sinned, that we are guilty, that we will repent and be forgiven. And here's where we find our, our true security is found. It's not found in towers, not found in, in good things that we do. It is only found in one place. It is found in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are no longer in judgment. Romans 8 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to fear evil. We don't need to fear accidents. Because we are eternally secure. The worst thing that can happen to us by worldly standards that our life is taken from us is actually the best thing. Is when we are ushered into glory, into Christ's presence. So the application for us is very simple. Repent of our sins. Trust in Christ and have no fear. Have no fear of anything this world or the devil can throw at us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord for the eye-opening grace to realize that on our own, we are in trouble. We are under the judgment. Each one of us, each one of us has fallen short of your law. But we are thankful. We are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful that that's not the end of the story, that we can repent, that we can come to you, that we can fall on your grace, receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel, and we will be saved. 
Father, I pray that we will take heart this message, and I pray, Lord, that you will give us boldness in proclaiming this message to all we come in contact with. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory.